Well, I have a... If you guys are on Facebook or Instagram and you follow me, you know that last night I made beef ribs in my smoker. I got a smoker for Christmas. Who saw that picture? Delicious. Can I just say, not to pat myself on my own back, but it was delicious. First time I've ever tried beef ribs. I got a smoker for Christmas, and we've done pork ribs, and we've done chicken, and I thought, I'm going to try this, this beef rib thing. I could cook, but my, my, my smoker's only so big, so if... if if you guys want to buy one of those big trailer smokers, I will smoke meat for you guys. Uh, I think we need one at the church. Amen. Let's pass the basket now. <laughs> so here's the deal. I'm new to this thing, so I'm reading websites and blogs and watching YouTube videos. How do I do this? And, and there's so many different ways to attack a piece of meat in a smoker. And so I'm describing to my wife, as, as we're getting close to it being done, I'm describing to her what the next step is. And because you have this nice bark on this piece of beef uh, ribs in your smoker, they say to grab a towel and pull it out because you don't want to mess up, disturb the bark. So I'm telling my wife about this. And in the middle of it, she says, well, if you do that, this is what's going to be wrong with it. And in that moment, in that moment, I don't know that I responded as great as I'm going to tell you to respond today. See, in that moment, my response was, well, babe, when you want to start your own barbecue blog and tell everyone else that they're wrong, then I'll listen to you. I don't recommend it. I'm not preaching because, we're not, I'm not preaching on marriage because I'm like the best. I'm preaching on marriage because I'm just like any one of you who are married, just trying to be better than I was yesterday. So and I tell you that story because I think what we're going to do at the very end of this message, I'm going to show you some opportunities where maybe... I went wrong. The, the real, the thing that hurts is my wife really is the hero of that story, and I haven't finished the story, and I'm kind of the goat. And when I say goat, I don't mean like greatest of all time. I'm the bum. So this is our last message in our series on marriage, and if I could just recap. First of all, I'd like to thank John Knack for speaking last week. Thank you, John, for the word. Absolutely. John spoke from Ephesians chapter 5. It's a very... Uh, very well-known passage on marriage relationship, and I um, will reference it quite a bit during this message. So just remember, John chapter 5 will be referenced quite a bit in this message, even though we're not going to be in John chapter 5. But let me, let me backtrack with you, because I think week one is super important. It's the foundational message for this whole series, and the big idea is that your marriage's biggest problem is that you are a sinner married to a sinner. And if I could enhance that, you are a selfish sinner married to another selfish sinner. That's your biggest problem. It's my biggest problem in my marriage. And then we talked week two that, you know, daily reconciliation with the Lord. We need daily reconciliation with our spouse, not just when things are bad. And John did a great job talking about submitting to one another in Ephesians chapter 5. The text we're going to look at today looks a whole lot like Ephesians chapter 5. At first glance, you might even think it's a parallel passage. Would you turn with me? Turn with me. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, I promise that this message is not repackaging last week's message just from a different text. Um, we're going to go, there's a specific detail in this passage that actually allows for us to build off of where we've been over the last few weeks. And I really feel like this very last message of this series should be the application. I mean, there's been application in every message and every point that we've made, but this one's going to be a little bit loaded on that way. Here's some tools to strengthen your marriage. Here's some tools 
when things get sticky. Here's some tools when your wife tells you that she knows more about barbecue blogging than you read from the experts. You know, I mean, we'll get there. That's really what we're going to end with is some real practical things to take away. And before I dive into 1 Peter chapter 3, I do want to say this. I recognize not everyone in this room is married. And I recognize people have different relationship statuses. Um, Really, I believe that what we're going to talk about today and what we've talked about through this whole series applies to other relationships. But we focused really on, on, on marriage simply because I really think that's just a need in our land and even in our church. I don't, I don't want anyone to feel judged one way or the other, whatever your history has been. This is from this point moving forward. And if you're not a Christian, I got to say, 1 Peter chapter 3 is written by Peter to Christians. And so the, the application of this is really applicable to those of us in this room who are Christians first and foremost. But I think there's something helpful for you as well. So helpful for your relationships, but even more so the good news of Jesus, the reason why we believe, the reason we're gathered here because we are sinners born that way in need of rescue and the father sent his son to rescue us. I hope that's the message that you walk away with more than anything else. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Like I said, very similar to Ephesians 5 on the surface with a little twist. In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourself instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband, Abraham, and called him her master. You are her daughter when you do what is right without fear of what your husband might do. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. So what we read right here is uh, Peter speaking to Christians in Asia Minor, both uh, Jewish Christians, and, and there was Gentile Christians who came to the mix, but he's speaking to them about how, here's what it means to live a life to bring God honor. I mean, it's real encouraging them, giving them instruction, and he says, here's how it looks in different relationships. We see that beginning in chapter two, which we're gonna reference in a moment, but here specifically, he's talking to husbands and wives. But really quick, scan verse chapter two. And then, and then look at the rest of chapter 3. Chapter 2, he talks about relationships, God-honoring relationships, relationships that, that show uh, God at work, unbelieving neighbors, you see that, human authority, and he speaks to slaves, how you conduct yourselves in regards to your, your, your masters. Now, I, I understand slavery is, is, is a terrible thing. Paul's not advocating it. Peter's not advocating it. They're just speaking to the world that existed in that first century and the way things were, okay? So he's saying, here's how you conduct yourself. First Peter chapter 3, the very next verse, he continues in these different kinds of relationships, husbands and wives, and then he ends up, the second half of 3, talking about other relationships that Christians have, a pretty generic general that you can apply to any relationship. Verses 1 through 2, we see that similarity to Ephesians chapter 5, but it's also there's a difference. There's a difference here when he says, what wives should do. 
Because he says, if you're married to somebody who's unbelieving, a, a, a non-Christian husband, here's what you should do. Now, it applies to all Christian wives, but the unbelieving husband applies like this special attention that's given there. What does he say they should do, which is very similar to Ephesians 5? And the New Living, which I read, it says, accept the authority of your husbands. That Greek word that's translated to accept the authority of your husbands in other translations with different theories of translation comes like, like the ESV, be subject to your husbands. NASB, be submissive. I understand that in the world we live in, those words don't sound great to you ladies in the house. Um, it's not meant to be some sort of domineering, oppressive sense of submission. Can I just say that that word submission is the same Greek word that we see in two, chapter 2, verse 13 and 18. When he's speaking about our response as Christians to people in, in authority, there is a submission there. Or a slave's response to the master, which now I know you're like, oh, I really don't like this now. He's using that same Greek word, talking about slaves and masters and husbands and wives. Now listen, like I said, it's not meant to be some sort of oppressive sense. As a matter of fact, there was a well-meaning uh, commentator, you're not going to like this. There was a well-meaning commentator who wanted to make sure that it was clearly understood that this is not about oppressing wives and husbands dominating. And, but he said this. Let me read it to you. The meaning of the wife's submission to her husband concerns the sexual relationship that should not be taken in a more, and should not be taken in a more general and oppressive sense. I don't think that makes it any better. It's not, it's not domineering, it's just dealing with sex. That's what you submit. That's not making it better. Actually, that translation it, it does not do the, the Greek word justice, nor does it do the context of this, this verse justice. So what is submission? It's best understood as voluntarily yielding your rights or your will to someone else's wishes or, or advice as an expression of love for that person. I think Pastor John, or Pastor John, John Knack, our elder, did a great job talking about submitting to one another last week. This was the message from last week. Biblical submission, when you see submission in Scripture, it's never submitting to someone's desires or wishes or needs if it should break, like, biblical commandments, like if it, bakes, uh, if it violates God's word. Because then you're violating God's word, which is a far greater standard, uh, far greater command. Really, submitting to one another is the opposite of living selfishly. It's the opposite of living with me first, which takes us right back to week one. I'm a selfish sinner, married to a selfish sinner, and that's problematic. Now, the goal here that Peter says is to win their non-believing husband without words. This doesn't mean that women can't speak. He's just saying, you know, you don't have to nag. You don't have to argue. You don't have to, to, to bug them. The way you lift your life will communicate a message, and then they will come to faith when they see it. Not a guarantee, because ultimately the husband's responsible for making their choice, but he's saying, here's what you do. You live your life in front of them, which is a very similar thing that he said in the previous chapter when he talks about unbelieving neighbors. Look at me with 1 Peter 2, 12. Very similar passage. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will, honor, and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. There is a change that takes place in the other person when you do what God has told you to do when you live and do the right thing. Not necessarily because you're trying to manipulate the situation, but because you're trying to follow what God has for you. It affects others. There's a, there's a, a ripple effect. 
And then verses three through four, he, he, he says, don't worry about your hairstyle and your jewelry. And this is not an anti-grooming thing. You, you're allowed to do your hair and you know, we're not that kind of church. So but do your hair, put makeup on, put deodorant on. He's saying that inner beauty is far greater than the outward beauty. Don't be so preoccupied with, with the outward things that you ignore the inner thing. And when, what does he just define as inner beauty in this passage? Look at it. Verse 3 and 4. Gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in God's sight. Now, once again, you're, if, you're, if you're coming in kind of defensive, like, what are you saying about women, gentle and quiet, that we're just kind of in our place, quiet? and No, gentle and quiet. Those words elicit strength. I mean, that, there's, there's a strength to it, a strength of character, a strong self-control, an elegance and a grace that he's calling wives to. And then he points out Abraham's wife is an example. example. We, won't, we won't dive into Genesis, but... And then he turns to verse... In verse 7, he turns to husbands. Now, I know some of you... I would joke like this with my wife, but I'm not going to preach it for real. But I would say, look, there's like six verses for you, babe, and only one for me. <laughs> Feel free to joke with your wife about that, but know that it's not, <laughs> just know that the imbalance there is not an imbalance in responsibility. It's just an imbalance in verses. Because he, remember, he's speaking specifically to wives who are married. Uh, he, he makes special attention to wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. But what does he tell husbands? In the same way, very similar to Ephesians 5. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she's your equal partner in God's gift to new life. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. Man, the big picture here, and the big picture are very similar to Ephesians 5, as I've said a number of times. Let me stop and read you a little bit of Ephesians 5. Just the very first verse that, Pastor, that John read last week. In the very last verse, 521, 533. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then everything in between, sandwiched with, so again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the woman must respect her husband. Sandwiched in between that is this submitting to one another. If I were to preach 1 Peter chapter 3, the thing that we've just been looking at, just straight up at first glance, and I think we should be able to take our Bibles and read it and understand it plainly, at first glance, then my big idea and my point, which is not my point today, would be that marriage is a two-way relationship. It's a two-way relationship, and God has custom-tailored instructions for both you and your spouse. That's a good point. I should have preached that. But I said that I want to conclude this series on marriage and give you some tools to give some application and maybe poke fun at myself in my interaction with my wife in beef ribs. I want to give you tools, but before I do that, I want to introduce you to a story in our church. Uh, we've, we've, I'm so blessed to work with a great staff. We have a creative team that is producing stories that are being told, beautiful stories in our church. You've seen it through the Stewardship Series. You've seen it through Thanksgiving. Um, check, this, check this story out. For the first three years, I don't think we spent... Maybe. Maybe a little more than a year, a year, year yeah. and a half with one another. So in and out constantly, either on workups or when he was on cruise for six, I guess the first time was 10 months. So it just, that honeymoon phase kind of got elongated a little bit. Plus we were talking the other night that we didn't really feel 
really married and committed to one another, we wouldn't say, until we kind of settled into each other for probably the first three years or so. By the time we had moved back to Virginia and uh, from California, then it was like, then he wasn't going out on workups and he was right there, he was there all the time. And, and so we had that kind of time to really be commit, committed in a way that we also had a time to mature. Mm -hmm. You know, we'd come up as, we were babies. Garrett just turned 22. 22, I was 23 when we got married. Um, and so we thought we knew a lot, but we didn't know diddly squat. So we're Gary and Stephanie Schwebach, and we've been attending uh, Radiant for just over 15 years. Here at the church, I'm a trustee, and I'll uh, soon be the uh, chairman of the trustee board for the next year. And Stephanie uh, serves as a spiritual leader and elder here at the church. I would say that the biggest thing about getting married is to be willing to make and state the commitment that no matter what happens, you're gonna to stick together. It becomes very easy at times when things aren't going well, or in our case, when we were separated for so long, to, uh, to say, you know, this isn't worth it, I'm done, this isn't fulfilling me, this, whatever, whatever the term is. But by making that commitment up front that no matter what happens, you're gonna to stick together. Because there, marriages go through ebbs and flows. And if you allow the down times to drive you to make uh, decisions, you're never going to, to experience the true beauty of, of marriage. You know, it, it sounds hard, but once you make that commitment, when that's, when that's no longer an option, then all of a sudden it gets a lot easier because, okay, well, we got to work through this. Uh, we used to joke each other that whoever left had to take the kids. And so we were going to stay. It's like, no, I'm not leaving. Yeah, I know. But this was this is what we signed on for, good and bad. Um, but So there's been lots of things, things with families, uh, things with our children, mm -hmm. uh, difficulties. Yeah, I'll tell you, if we hadn't had the Lord there would have been no way that we would have been able to survive individually or as a couple. I think one of the keys to any relationship is extending grace to, to the other person mm -hmm. and realizing that what they're going through and validating that and being able to, to give them the support they need even when you're, even when you're not feeling as I say, feeling the love necessarily. Mm -hmm. Also understanding that anything that we've gone through or are going through, others have gone through. It, it, we're not the first. Mm -hmm. And that our Lord is able to take us through those things because he's taken people through much worse things. And also being willing to accept whatever happens because you know we're, we're here temporarily and the Lord has a plan for us but when something happens, you know, I, many times I've said, okay, Lord, I don't like this. I don't want this, but this is evidently what you have for us. Okay, so we'll go for it. And it, there's none of this 50 and 50 because that's ridiculous, you know, because then you could say, well, I gave my 50 today, so it's your turn to pick up the rest of it. No, I give you all. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I fail in giving him the complete uh, 100% of myself, you know, and the same way he does for me. But 
that's just marriage. And it's just, you weather the rocky things. Love you. Love you. Mm -hmm. Gary and Stephanie Schwabach uh, had an incredible interview, and unfortunately, they had a lot of insight on marriage and a lot of great advice that did not make that video. As a matter of fact, when we were preparing this for the service, Jordan, who put the, did the post on this, he just said, it feels wrong to you know, make this little video and cut so much great content. So if you'd like to hear that, they'll take you to lunch today after service. Just No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that stuck out in my mind amongst many of those things was it's not a 50-50 thing. That's ridiculous. To quote exactly, that's ridiculous. It's not a 50-50 thing. And that's where we're going to take another look at the passage we've been in. It's not a 50-50 thing. We, we see very clearly that, this, that marriage is a two-way thing, but two-way can be 50-50. Look, two ways. No, but it's 100-100, right? Take a look at this again, but go back to verse 1 of chapter 3 in 1 Peter. Notice that the wife of the unbelieving husband is to do the right thing, what God has said to do, to do the thing that gives God glory, do the thing that reflects their identity in Christ, the transformation that's taking place in their life as a result of God's work in their life as believers, to do it, no matter what the status of their husband is, no matter what, how they're treated. Look at, look at chapter 3 and go all the way down to verse 6, the very end of verse 6. You are her daughter, speaking of Sarah, when you do what is right without the fear of what your husband might do. You're doing the right thing not because someone deserves it, not because they've, they've, they've done their part. They haven't, you know, I think Stephanie said this. I've done my 50, you do your 50. You do the right thing because you're bringing 100%. You do the right thing no matter what. And he says a very similar thing in chapter 2 to those who are, have unbelieving neighbors. Live your life the right way, the God-honoring way. Not because they deserve it, not because, I mean, they're going to accuse you of doing wrong, but yet you continue to do the right thing. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 2, the, verse, the, the chapter right before where we're at, he tells slaves to live the right way, despite the fact that they would be abused, despite the fact that they could be mistreated. Verse 19 of chapter 2, For God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Conscious of his will, that applies to all of these relationships. That I, I interact and I have a relationship conscious of his will in ways that bring him glory and honor. Just no matter what the other person does. Jesus is the example. He lays it out there at the very end of 2 before we get to our passage today. Let Jesus be the example of doing the right thing. He didn't do it because we deserved it. He did it because of who he is. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We love because he first loved us. Jesus did not meet us halfway. He made us all the way. Undeserving as we are. That's why First Peter starts off with in a similar way. He's not saying in a similar way, wives be like slaves to. He's saying in a similar way, do the right thing, the God-honoring thing. He's not saying they should be beaten or in toxic relationships. That's, that's not what's being said here. Doing the right thing 
the honoring God thing, whether that person deserves it or not. And we know from week one of the series, that person probably doesn't deserve it. But it's not for you to withhold living how God has called you to live. If we take a second look at what we've been looking at, what happens when you do the right thing, when you live the right way? There's change. We see it. Unbelieving neighbors, we see it with unbelieving husband. Doing the right thing can lead to change in someone's life. They would go from not believing to believing. Now, this truth extends not just to an evangel evangelistic you know, change, but it, it comes with a change that when you live a certain way, people will change in response to how you're living. In, in this example, it's people coming to faith, but it actually goes beyond those kind of changes. What's funny is I think we all understand, and I hope we do. If you don't understand this, let's, let's get this up front. We really can't change anybody else. You cannot change your spouse. And if you try, you're looking for a fight and you're looking for frustration. Anyone here ever try to change their spouse? Anyone's spouse ever try to change you? No, just kidding. Don't raise your hand. I mean, basic psychology says that. And I don't preach psychology. We preach the Bible. But it's pretty much understood whether you're a Christian or not. You can't change other people. Notice Peter doesn't say, if you're wise, if you're married to an unbelieving spouse, do all you can to convert that person. It's your job. It's on you. Argue, nag, withhold sex. Do what you got to do to make them a Christian. You know, he says, live your life. Follow my plan for what it means to be in a relationship as the wife, custom-tailored for your role. Let me illustrate this real quick. I need a volunteer, I, and the reason I'm doing this is because I could pick my kids, but you'll think I rigged it, and I did not rig it. Phil, you, this is the punishment for standing on stage. Come stand here real quick. Now, I cannot make Phil do anything. I cannot change Phil. I could yell, I could scream, I could touch them, but I don't want to live stream a fight. But look at these people real quick. Now, if I say, Phil, I want you to look on that side of the room. Look, look, look. Sure. He's not supposed to look. Oh, okay. <laughs> My point is, I could get in his face, I could yell and scream, and I could say, you're looking. Oh, I'm sorry. But I, I'm not making you look. Some sort of guilt thing is making you look. Maybe the pastor role. But if, I mean, if I could, I could say, look, Phil, I'm telling you, look. And I'm not changing him, am I? There's no change. But here's the thing. You're looking at me now. You're looking this direction. And here's the point. Thank you. Thanks, Phil, real quick. Thanks. Listen, here's the point. This was given to me, but it's, it's been a, a game changer for me. Remember, this is not manipulation. I'm not trying to change Phil. I'm trying to do the right thing and be who God's called me to be. But the big idea that I want you to take away is this. I can't change you. By God's grace, I can change. And when I change, you will change. So how do I need to change? I told Phil to look over here, and when he finally figured out he's not supposed to look over there, he stopped looking over there because I couldn't make him look over there. He voluntarily did it at first. But he started looking over there when I changed my position. I got into his face and said, look over there, look over there. He would not change his stare. 
So instead of changing him, I changed myself. And I came over here, and he changed. I can't change you, but by God's grace, I can change. A selfish sinner in need of rescue, being transformed in the image of Christ. And when I change, you will change. That's what Peter's saying to wives here. That's what he's saying to neighbors of unbelievers. And if that's the case, then we need to say, how can we change? And there is a freedom here when we realize we're not responsible for people's change. We're responsible for what's in front of us and what God's called us to do and to be. And, and we create room for God to bring change. Not a manipulation of others, but a space for God to change people's lives. If that's true, then here are the few things I want you to do. Here are the tools I'd like you to take away. But the first thing we need to address is our heart. Start with your heart. There was a guy who was a professor at UCLA called Albert Morabian, and he created something called the Morabian Rule of Communication, which says this, what you communicate is really just 7% verbal. Man, craft those words, use your words carefully, say things you want to say when you're communicating, but only 7% of what you communicate is actually the words you say. 38% is your behavior. That communicates far stronger than your words which is consistent with what Peter's saying. Let your, be, let your behavior be God-honoring. Let your behavior be in alignment with God, what God has for you as a spouse. But even more than your verbal communication, your behavioral communication, 55% of what you communicate comes from your attitude. Before you say or act anyway, you don't believe me. Think about the situations where someone's saying those pleasant words and acting nice, but you just sense that they really don't like you? Have you been there, or just me? Man, how you feel about somebody is communicated. I don't know how that works. I don't, I'm not quite sure, but we, we, we communicate by just our attitudes, and others can know, and others sense it. Your spouse and other relationships respond to you based more on your attitude towards them than your words or your behavior. And some of us need to check our attitudes about our spouse. It's that giving grace that Gary spoke about. Start with your attitudes. You could, you, could, you could utilize the tools we're about to talk about, but if you're, they're just the verbal and behavioral tools, unless your heart is right, unless you, and your heart won't be right because you're a selfish sinner, unless you're checking your heart and you're starting with your heart, these tools will fall short. But let's talk about these tools. And the reason I want to say, I want to close this out with some practical tools is simply because I think tools are necessary to get the job done. Like you can love, you could say, well, I love my spouse. I'll try my best and we'll just fix it. I wish it worked that way. I love my car. Actually, I love my brand new used Toyota Tacoma. But in order for me to fix it, I need the right tools. First of all, I need to know how to fix it. So just loving my car doesn't mean I know how to fix my car, and if I don't have the tools to do it, I simply can't fix it. I think there's a place for tools. Now, these are not the be-all, end-all of tools. This is, can I just be honest with you? These are some practical things that Heather and I have come across that have been game-changers for us. And there's other resources that I would point you, I'm happy to point you in the directions of. So the first thing I'd like to discuss is the, something that's been brought up the last couple of weeks John brought it up last week, the Love and Respect book by uh, Emerson Egerich. And I won't dive into the whole book, but the whole idea is if you believe your spouse is well, well 
intentioned, that you give them the benefit of the doubt, you extend grace, and based on Ephesians 5, that a husband ought to love his wife and, and a wife respects, he says, you know, we all, have, we all need love and respect, both husbands and wives, but we're wired to really crave one or the other as a male or a female. Like, I, I don't really, I've never looked at my wife and been like, oh, that's so unloving to me. I've been like, oh, that's disrespectful. Not very often, but every once in a while. But my wife certainly looked at me and, and said that wasn't very unloving. She said it last night with the barbecue, and we'll get there. See, what happens, the opposite of love and respect in a marriage is contempt and disdain, marked by annoyance and shortness and coldness. It's what Emerson calls the crazy cycle. He says the way that you break it is someone has to, someone has to lovingly step in and break the cycle. And here's, the, here's what he says. Here's his advice. When your spouse is acting unloving or un or disrespectful, to stop and in a very safe way confront it without saying, you, you know what you say? You say, hey, and this is what I say to my wife when she's not happy with me or short with me or irritated with me. A lot of times it's, it's valid, but here's what I say to my wife if I'm going to stop this cycle because it, it, it escalates, but here's what de-escalates it. I like, I'll, I'll just say, babe, have I been unloving to you? I don't even have to say because you've been stinking pretty disrespectful. Like she understands because we've established this tool in my life. Have I been unloving? So yesterday when I made the crack about the barbecue bloggers and said, well, you can just you know, tell all the bloggers and YouTube guys on, about barbecue that you know more, she looked at me and she said, essentially, well, she did the shortcut. She was like, that was kind of unloving. And instead of me jumping in saying, oh, yeah, but you did this, and you know what I said? I said, you're right. And my mother-in-law was sitting on the other side of the half wall, and she could tell you that true story. I felt her go, ooh, in her chair while we're having this interaction in the kitchen. <laughs> I tell you what, 10 years ago, that thing would have escalated and spiraled out of control. To de-escalate, to, to own something... It allows ownership for your feelings. It allows ownership for what actually happened without pointing blame. This is the grace that was talked about in that video. When you, when you presume your wife or your spouse is well-intentioned, then the situation may just need a little bit more understanding. So it's kind of being slow to speak. Patient, Right? The next thing would be iMessages. Now, this is kind of a wooden thing. And I have a handout I can give you. I could point you in the direction of a book. I could give you a handout. Um, Heather and I were given this in, in a counseling setting. We don't use it a lot, but it, it, was, it was a game changer when we, when we did some major work in our marriage. They're called iMessages. Uh, um, if you are an Office fan, you know, the, the, the Office TV show, it kind of reminds me of Jim and Pam speaking my truth. Remember those episodes? It's a little bit like that, so it's a little wooden, but it really makes sense because it really does. It allows you to directly communicate without being threatening. It allows you to actually say exactly how you feel and what's going on, but you're not necessarily... Because the moment you say you, if you give a you message, what happens? Someone just digs in their heels. They, just, they become automatically defensive. If, if I start with you, 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 but if I say I, so here's what I could have done. I could have said, babe... It's hard to do, to not say you. When you walk in here and you tell me you know better than, uh, I probably could have said, 
You know, when I'm just telling you a story about what I've read about how to handle barbecue ribs, and then I'm told how wrong I am and everyone on the internet is, I feel like really frustrated, and that was an attack on me, even though all these people... So, I mean, there's a way to do that. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm coming up with it on the, on the moment, but the idea is, and I said, I have a handout. I'd love to give this to you. I don't want to re- misrepresent it. Um, but it really is speaking the truth in love with emphasis on the love part. I'll give you another secret. Heather and I, uh, we use code words for each other. We have pet names for each other. They're not like pet names like Sweetie and Sugar Plum and Honey Bunch and whatever. They're, they're pet names like Back Down and Stop It. I won't tell you my pet name for her. Actually, I won't tell you her pet name for me. These are like... <laughs> but this is also something in a, in, a, in a setting. We had established certain things that like drive us crazy about each other. Really points of tension and conflict. And... I found out that if I said, okay, Charlotte, which is my mother-in-law's name, it doesn't end up being a very good thing. Am I the only one? So I have something else for when she does this one thing. And I have my issues. Hey, babe, I was just talking about you. Welcome back to service. Love you. Uh, But you know what it does? It, it takes away the sarcastic jabs. It takes away the confrontational dialogue. Because I could say that word, and we have an agreement, like written in blood. Well, written in ink. We just did the blood thing. No, we didn't do that. But we have an agreement that it, those words are sacred. Like, don't abuse it. But when it's said, you got to back down. So I could give you a resource on that if you're interested. In, I think it's a pretty cool thing. Uh, the next thing would be this, because I, I really wanted to make sure that we come off this series and help give you the tools, besides these few that I've just kind of introduced. Uh, we want to actually offer a class starting in March on marriage relationships. Pastor Dee's going to come and share a little bit about that. Essentially, it's four sessions on a Saturday morning, and it's called Conversations, uh, because conversations is where we need the tools for our marriage. I know we've done a lot of theory, a lot of theology, a lot of deep stuff, um, but here's a real practical thing to dig deep, to strengthen our marriages, and uh, Pastor is going to come and share. Good morning. I've got to say I'm really excited to see more and more faces that we haven't seen in almost a year, uh, so we can rejoice with that, because we all need connection, right? Um, COVID has kind of put a kink in connections. So we kind of have to do a horrible thing here in the mornings when we want to greet each other with we waving. And that's the, almost the best we can do unless you're close enough to fist pump or elbow or whatever. But don't you sometimes just get that feel like you want to hug somebody? Yeah. Well, please restrain from doing that <laughs> without your mask on especially, okay? All right. Well, Pastor Jerome has put together these last four weeks in what I would say is an amazing way. And I thank you personally. Thank you. Uh, since I'm a counselor, I just kept sitting there thinking, uh-huh, uh-huh, good, good, keep going. Um, 
And then today he gives you some practical ways to be able to help relationships. This class is not going to be set up for just married people, all right? Because everyone in this room has conversations, mm -hmm. all right? So uh, we are targeting our teenagers on up, all right? Because conversations need to be safe. And so that's really what this class is going to be all about, is how do we have safe conversations? You know, and we can joke, and we will, and we'll have fun with it, but you know the hardest part of being around people, and it's the most dangerous thing that we do with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our spouses, with our children, our friends, on and on. The most dangerous thing we do is communicate. And so we're going to work on that. Now, if there's anyone in here that has never had a problem communicating with anyone ever in your life, I would really like to meet you. <laughs> Some may have had a better time at it. But you know what happens is our lives growing up into our adult relationships sometimes bring a lot of pain to us. And that pain is the filter that we communicate through. And so showing someone grace when through your filter you feel like they've really hurt you is nearly impossible. So healing can take place, and it's well done, Pastor, it's not trying to change the other person. Rats, you know? And I still, after doing this for about 30 years now, cannot figure out why it is so important to us to be right. We have to learn how to listen better and talk less. So there's lots of things that we're going to be uh, learning in this class. And it, you know, if you can take two Saturday mornings for the next couple of months for a couple of hours and come here or we'll make a way um, that people can do it online um, because I think it's important that it, everyone, it doesn't matter if you're 100 years old, and sometimes it's even harder the older we get. If that, if that filter is really clogged up, my daddy taught me, Clean the air filter in your car, because it's not going to run right if you don't. We need to clean our filter of all of life and all the hurt and pain. I worked with a couple, and uh, they were, it was not a, wasn't a pleasant thing. And it was very hard even for me, because I couldn't figure out what was going on. The wife said, he yells and yells at me for everything. And so as they were sitting in my office, right in the offices at the, the church, example, let's work on an example. She says, okay, I can give you an example. Of course, women always talk right. They're really going to speak up first, right? And she said, I called him the other day and asked him if he knew where my Social Security card was. I said, okay. 
And then what happened? He started yelling at me and screaming at me and putting me down and calling me all kinds of names. Okay, I can't read mine, so I had no idea what was going on there. So I asked him, I said, did she say that to you the same way she just said it in here? Yes. And I said, what, what did you hear her say? And his response was pretty eye-opening because he said, she was accusing me of taking it. All right? That was his filter. He was told he was wrong all the time and accused of doing things he didn't do. So unfortunately, we got the answer, or maybe it's a great thing we got the answer. The hard work was yet to be done. It is how, does we, how do we change that filter? So the do that also. We all have relationships that need to improve. So I'm just going to ask you to be honest with yourselves, is that how many times have we wanted to be right and didn't think about grace at all? We get defensive. Well, we go into that fight, flight, or freeze place. Some people, when you get in an argument, just walk away, and that makes their spouse or their friend or whatever really mad. Others get defensive, so they're going to attack. Others will just shut down and act like they didn't hear anything. All of that dysfunction breaks down the communication. So we need to be able to figure out, for us personally, there's no shame. We all do it. And even if we've worked on it for years and years, we will still all do it because that is the sin nature, which I call woundedness. All right, our woundedness raises its ugly head. So please give some thought to joining us. Um, and again, this is not about whether you're single or married or divorced or anything else. This is whether or not you want to improve your communication so that Christ's love can shine through you. Look forward to seeing you there. Thank you. I uh, will send an email to, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're a part of the church email list, we'll send an email to our online registration form next week. It'll go live tomorrow on our website. So um, I encourage you to be part of that so we can communicate well and fight well, actually, is what I would like to say. The greatest thing that, uh, the greatest improvement in my marriage over the 22 years I've been married wasn't because we went to marriage counseling, it was because I went to counseling and I worked on myself. You've heard me say this, I believe that, I don't really believe in marriage problems, I believe in people problems and we bring our problems to our marriage and this communication class and the woundedness she's speaking of uh, helps to address a lot of that. I want to close this message by reading something I came across, uh, a pastor, and author, Mark Littleton, wrote this about marriage. When God made light, the angels draw near to let the refractions roll over the face like a symphony. When God made earth, they, the angels, poked their fingers into its moistness. They put a fleck on their nose and smiled. When God made a rose, they parted its petals and passed it among themselves, saying, so fragile, yet how it grasped the soul. When God made a giraffe, they touched the strange hide and 
murmured to themselves that God was up to something magnificent. When God made man, each one retired to his chamber and peered into the writings, looking for some clue to the mystery. When God made woman, they came back out of their chambers and gazed, their jaws slacked with awe. When God joined man and woman and said, let them become one flesh, everything suddenly made sense. And the cheering still shakes the galaxies. The cheering still shakes the galaxies. Shakes the galaxies because it's the mystery of God to put selfish, sinful people together to transform individuals and transform relationships. May they continue to cheer in the galaxies for your marriage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. What a privilege we have to look to your word, to gather together, to grow in understanding who you are and what you've done. And because of what you've done, we can understand who we are and we live out of that place, rescued and changed people. May we be rescued and changed people. May our marriages be rescued and changed as a result of the change within us. May we do the right thing, not because of what others are doing, but because of who we are, just as you did, because of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.